This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And we broadcast out of a small college town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. We're a bit spoiled in this part of the country when it comes to food, especially barbecue. Every once in a while, we like to get out of the studio and hit the road to track down some of the finest eats in the South. Here's Jesse. Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi is one of those places that instantly takes you back to a time and place that stays original in some of the best ways possible. Pulled pork, tamales, fried chicken, an unforgettable, subtle barbecue sauce. It all started here in 1924, founded by Abraham Davis. I was hoping you'd ask me the question. I'll try to do that. I'm not as good as my dad. This is Pat Davis, Abraham's grandson and the current owner of Abe's Barbecue. My grandfather was an immigrant from Lebanon, came over around 1900. He was uh, 14 years old, and he came with his two younger siblings. That was it, in the bottom of a, a freighter, I guess, or with the cows and the goats and in the bottom he would go upstairs and get food and bring it down to his younger brother's sister then he somehow got to north mississippi i know i don't know how that happened um as he got a little bit older he started peddling to the uh, farm workers on horseback he'd take them linen and socks dresses just different things that i'll i've heard this from my grandmother and, and my father in 1924, he started Wednesday's Barbecue. It was Delta Inn, but it was actually just a, a barbecue shack, a one-room deal on Fourth Street and Florida. That was the intersection. Um, sometimes, in the I guess it was in the 40s, the how that was the main drag that he was on. They, they moved it to where we are now. The main drag came sort of like a bypass, so he moved from the 4th Street location to this location here. And they built this building. This is the second building on this lot. It was built in 1959. So we've been in this building since 1959, on this lot since the mid-40s, from what I've heard. Located at the intersection of highways 49 and 61, this is one of several places in the state of Mississippi, believed by many to be Robert Johnson's legendary crossroads, which brings in tourists by the busload. People from all over the world. I mean, it really is amazing to see the folks that do come through. Clarksdale isn't just a tourist attraction. It's a real place, and so is Abe's Barbecue. Pat Davis was raised in this restaurant when his dad was in charge. I mean, he would leave me here with um, two guys back, I guess I would have been... In the early 70s, I was 11, 12 years old, and, and we'd all, they'd run, they took care of me like, you know, uncles, and we'd run the place by ourselves. This was in the afternoon when Dad would go home and take a break. He would work in the morning and come back in the evening. It's not uncommon to see a customer loading up on a case of Abe's barbecue sauce. They sell it at the counter, and you can buy it online at abesbarbecue.com. It makes for some of the best pulled pork sandwiches you've ever had. We cook with, um, Pecan wood. Try to use pecan all the time, you know, like a hickory tree. And it's it's hard to get hickory here. We do have a a lot of pecans. We have pecan orchards, so it's easier to get pecan wood. 
Um, and I think that the difference, I mean, you could cook barbecue at your house over a smoker. I can cook it in my house over a smoker. That's basically the same, you know. But the barbecue sauce is where it's different, I think. Our sauce is on a tangy side. It's not sweet. Um, I mean, people just tend to gravitate towards it. They like it. Well, most most do. And I have people that don't like it. I had a guy come in a couple of months ago from Memphis, and he's never been through here, ate it. So I didn't like it, didn't like it at all. So I didn't even, I just didn't charge him. So he left. Promise he came back within like 10 days. He said, man, I don't know what it is. It hit me. He said a couple of days ago, I got to get one more of those things. He said he came back and paid for the one he ate. I didn't charge him for it too. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty cute story. Abe's also has some incredible tamales. It's a staple here in Mississippi from generations of Mexican labor. They made them and sold them in little push buggies. Daddy did tell me that, down on the city streets. And um, I guess maybe when they went home during the off-season, people missed them. So my grandfather apparently learned how to make it from someone, and he makes we make them now. Well, we don't actually make them now. We have someone make them for us, and we cook them here. We get them here. But we have made them uh, back in the mid-'70s to in about the middle-'80s. But it's, it was a job. And then... Um, the guy that was making them back here with us couldn't make them anymore, so we just found someone to make them for us. Mississippi being the clash of cultures that it sometimes is, the founder of Abe's did the right thing. A group of young black students were sent, or were coming to restaurants, and if they came to Abe's and, and grandfather let them in. Most other restaurants did not let them in, and I think the other Lebanese family at Rest Haven let them in their restaurant. And Dad said there were the only two restaurants in town that weren't in a lawsuit. I think we get along really well in this town. You know, people may say, you know, it's a lot of racism. It, it, I mean, I'm sure you have your pockets of trouble. But overall, Clarksdale has a, a really good-hearted community, all of them, you know. I've moved off before. But it's not home. I mean, when you come back, it's still, I can go to Walmart, man. I, I just love to see people, hey, 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 hey. You know everybody. You know, you, or you know them or you know somebody in the family. Wintertime um, is, is good because we got a lot of hunters coming in and uh, family, families coming back for Thanksgiving with their families, you know, to be with their parents or grandparents. So the holidays are good. Hunting season's good. We have downtime when the farmers start getting in the field here in another week or two. Well, they would like to be there another week or two. We'll have rain for another week or two. But um, when the farmers start planting, we slow down because they're, they're kind of can't. And then it's slow, it gets better for us in the summertime because they're sort of laid back on the farming part. Then when they start harvesting, we get slow again. And back to that regular cycle, hunting season starts back up and holidays start piling on, so we pick back up again. Yeah, business has been good. Uh, I think tourism has been a boom for this place. If it wasn't for tourism, I think it'd be a lot different. But that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I, you know, when it first started 20 years ago, I, mean, I said, why would people want to come here, you know? And, but they started, and they haven't stopped, and it's gotten more and more. Every year we have a, uh, well, we've had it for the last, I'm saying like 20 years, a Juke Joint Festival in April. And... They send a group, four or five bands to, that play at different intervals outside, and we have people outside. Well, a couple of years ago, it was raining. The first group went outside, started raining, they had to move inside. Well, the room that they came to was only, they had to put their band in, was, was probably 
14 by 24, and it was in the, at the end of the restaurant. Well, they still had to, uh, for some reason, they couldn't uh, modify their amps. They had to leave everything on like it was outside. It was the loudest packed house I've ever seen in my life. I mean, people were standing up in this room. Everything was full, just stand-up room only. And, and the band was so loud, I don't know how they could even, the people, that, they, you couldn't get away from the noise because they, it was just too small of a, an area. And that's, that, that was unique when it happened to us. Uh, we don't have that much happen to, like that. We had no other plan. There's no other way to, to let them play. So we had four bands playing in here, at full throttle in this small room. Visit Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads of U.S. 49 and 61 for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And you were listening to Pat Davis. And he's the grandson of Abraham who started Abe's Barbecue. And it's an institution here in northern Mississippi. Everyone thinks it's the best. Well, actually, I do. And everybody here argues about what the best barbecue is. And, well, in this one... We don't do a lot of opinions on this show, but I'm right. And because it's Lebanese, probably, I have a little bit of bias. And by the way, Lebanese people found their way up and down the Mississippi River. So too did Jews. And that was to trade, to peddle, to make a buck, and to call this great new place, America, their homes. Abe's Barbecue, the story of a family business, a multi-generational family business, here in the Mississippi Delta. This is Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, the story of Richard Montanez. Originally from Mexico, Richard's family moved to California where he grew up doing manual labor. His whole life had been spent below the poverty line. But one day, well, everything changed when he got a job as a janitor. But of all places, Frito-Lay. Faith brings us the rest of the story. Richard Montanez wrote a book titled A Boy, a Burrito, and a Cookie. From janitor to executive, Montanez was working as a janitor for Frito-Lay in the 80s. But now, he is worth millions. In his book, he talks about how fear is what holds most people back. 
His success did not come from his great education or from who he knew. In fact, he doesn't have a formal education at all. This is the story of how a man went from a janitor to a millionaire. What was life like growing up for Richard Montanez? I was a, a young boy during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Now, what I like to tell people is that I wasn't old enough to have an impact on the movement, but I was old enough that the movement had an impact on me. And here's how the story goes. We're in a one-room one apartment, and my mom's getting me ready for school because I was being bused from my school to an all-English-speaking school across town. And I remember I'm crying because I don't want to go to school. My mom says, why not? And I said, because everybody speaks English. You know, it's not fair. People forget is that, you know, during my days, there were no bilingual classes. If, if, if you wanted your license, you needed to know English. It was, it, was, it was pretty difficult. It was different. It was really different. And um, so my uncle takes me to the corner, and uh, here comes the yellow bus. And then there goes the yellow bus. So I'm kind of happy and telling my uncle, I guess they're not going to stop for us. There was about 10 of us waiting. Then all of a sudden we hear this big pop and bang and we see this green bus coming up the hill smoking and um, that's the bus that uh, they sent for us and I remember I told my uncle it's, it's like it happened yesterday that's why I say sometimes you got to go back you know so you, you can catch some of those wisdom and some of the things that happened to you so uh, I'm telling my uncle why can't I ride the yellow bus like the other kids and he has no explanation I don't know this is the bus that they sent for you it wasn't until I was an adult that I finally realized why they sent that green bus. And it was society at the time saying that this group of children, this group of 10, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. Let's put them on a green bus, parade them across town so that the whole town can see that because of who they are, they're not good enough to ride. And, and as, a, as a young boy, that, uh, I took that on, because you have to understand, I didn't know what diversity was, I didn't know what discrimination was, I didn't know what race was. But one thing that I did know, and I knew my color. So for me, it was like, oh, dark skin is kind of like a second-class citizen. That's all I knew. So, oh, okay, so I began to take that on. I'm not good enough for the yellow bus. So we get to school. I don't understand the word the teacher's saying, uh, but I always said this, that there's one sound that's international, that every child knows that sound. That is the recess or the lunch bell. It was uh, lunchtime, so it was all a relief. And, you know, my group, we got our lunches, and, you know, we sat outside, and uh, I pulled my lunch out. And I was getting ready to take a bite, and I put it back. I put it back because everybody in that whole uh, playground was staring at me. And the reason they were staring at me, because it was a burrito. And what people need to understand that this was 1963, the world hadn't seen a burrito yet. You know, contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell didn't introduce the burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the fact is, I was embarrassed. So I went home and I told my mom in Spanish, I said, you know, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids, because I don't want to be different. And I told my mom, why do I have to ride the green bus? Why do I have to be this color? Why do I have to speak this language? Why do I have to eat this food? I want to fit in like everyone else. But my mom, I've always said she's a marketing genius. She said, no, this is who you are. And that was Wednesday when I was bused to that school. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. Thursday, she made me two burritos. So I went to school, shared a burrito with a friend on Thursday. 
Friday I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. That's when I realized that even at a young age that, you know what, maybe, just maybe there is something special about different, being different. And I finally realized that none of us were created to fit in. We were all created to stand out. And I think that's what we need to teach our young people is quit trying to fit in because it's never going to happen because you weren't created to fit in. You were created to stand out. So for me, that became a revelation that led to a revolution of my life. I knew that, okay, I'm different, but it's okay. And uh, I really started to fall in love with my culture and who I was. His mom had an impact on how he saw himself. She refused to let him be ashamed of his culture, whether that be the color of his skin or his food. But there are other people in his family that impacted him as well, especially when it came to work ethic, even when it meant the type of janitor he would be at Frito-Lay. So, you know, my mentors were my dad and uh, my grandfather. Now, they didn't mentor me in you know, academics or how to write a check. They had no bank accounts. What they mentored me in how to work hard, how to be the first one, uh, never to be on time, to be early. You know, I'd never been late. You know, I have this thing. I'd, ra I'd rather be, you know, an hour early than five minutes late. Well, I, I gained that from them, but I didn't realize also another thing that that would separate me. Because when I, when I was first hired as a janitor, uh, I remember I went and told my grandfather and my dad at the same time, and both of them said, when you mop that floor, you make sure that it shines, that people will know that a Montanez mopped it. Then my dad said, you listen to your grandfather. When, that, when you mop that floor, let people know that a Montanez. So I took that on. I really believed that, you know, uh, in my heart, I was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay ever had. I, I took out the trash, I mopped the floors, but I saw that I had an influence as a janitor. People were smiling because they'd walk into the break room and it smelled fresh. They'd walk, something like, well, I can make people smile just by working hard. And, and I remember, because uh, there's always the doubters, you know, and I like to tell young people, you know, stay away from the haters, you know. And people said, well, what do you do? So I'm the janitor. Oh, you're, the, you're just a janitor? And I said, you know what? There's no such thing as just a janitor. There's no such thing as just a waiter. There's no such thing as, a, there's no such thing as just. When you believe in your heart that you're going to be the best. And I believed in my heart. And people were taking that. And I, that floor shine, You know, and, uh, and, I, and, and I've said this before. You know, there, there's so many statements out there that are incorrect. And one of them is I'd like to correct. And the statement is that... Uh, you get promoted by who you know. And that's not true. You get pr promoted by who knows you, who knows of you, who knows your work ethics, who knows that they can trust you. you. You could say you know the CEO of the company, but if he doesn't know you, you'll never get that opportunity. See, I didn't realize that. I was just being me. I just want, I was just happy. I just wanted, you know, everything that I could get out of life in my area. So when the time did come when they were having problems, you know, I, I started to learn uh, my whole industry, uh, whether it was my job or not, you know, I, I would uh, hang out with the, the guy that ran the machines. I would hang out with the guy that, that cooked the product, and I'd say, teach me this, and I was just having fun. And you've been listening to Richard Martinez and his story, and what a story it is, and what a lucky man he was and is to have a dad and a granddad who taught him to work hard and that no job was beneath any man, the dignity of work 
Well, it speaks for itself. Make sure people know Amantanez mopped that floor and make that floor shine. And the pride of work, my goodness, it reminds me of the great street sweeper speech by Martin Luther King. By the way, we did an entire segment on it. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Type Martin Luther King and street sweeper speech. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, Richard Montanez, his story, his family story, and overcoming obstacles here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and we've been listening to the story of Richard Montanez, who went from janitor to millionaire. And let's return to faith and the rest of this story. Montanez was both curious and a hard worker. Why was it that he was never afraid? Even as a child, he was taking chances. A lot of it was being naive. A lot of it was not knowing to play rules. You know, if you don't know the you just play the way you think you can. But, uh, you know, every Tuesday they had uh, after-school reading programs. And uh, one was here for the Latino kids and one for the non-Latino. So you, you, I would get in every Tuesday in the line that I was told to get in. And uh, one day I broke ranks. And I got in the white line. And you should have seen my own line, intentionally or unintentionally. They were saying, Ricardo, das loco. Richard, you're crazy. This is our line. And when I got in this line, I was really... Uh, I had a lot of fear because all the white kids turned around and was like, hey, the, you know, they were saying what they were taught. Their line's over there. Nothing, nothing me just like, hey, you know, you're in the wrong line. Kind of, you know, how kids do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wonder if I can pass for being white. There was two beautiful ladies up there in the trailer. I remember blonde, blue eyes. And I kept thinking, are they going to notice that I'm not white? And really, I had, I had a fear that was unbelievable. But I had something inside of me that was greater than that fear. And when my friends were saying, what are you doing? I, I just looked at them and I whispered in a loud way, said, they have cookies inside. I'm going to get us some cookies. And the truth is, why did I get in that line? Why did I? Because sometimes you got to break ranks. You got to get out of that line you were told to get in. Because I was hungry. And I knew they had, that's all, I just wanted a cookie. I was hungry. And as much fear as I had, my hunger was greater than my fear. And that's why I tell people today, if you're hungry for that promotion, if you're hungry for that degree, if you're hungry to run for an office, fear will leave. And when I got up there, guess what those two ladies did? They filled my pockets with cookies. Now, there's two morals of that story. One is hunger is the antidote to fear. If you're hungry, you'll never fear again. The other part of that story is that Everyone needs to understand, and I mean everyone, needs to understand that there's a cookie that's been baked just for you. Your job is to get out of that line that you were told to get into and get into the cookie line. For many of us, it means to get out of the uneducated line into the educated, the poverty line into the prosperity line. And uh, that's why I tell you, that's why uh, my success has been beyond my wildest dream. I really didn't know any better. All I had was I'm hungry. 
So how did he become an executive? By the mid-1980s, Frito-Lay was struggling. As a way to boost morale, then-CEO Roger Enrico recorded a video message and disseminated it to the company's 300,000 employees. I mean, he, he told everyone there across the country, actually across the world, 300, I think 300,000-plus employees at the time, uh, we want all of you to act like owners. And you got to understand, that was such a bold statement because... That was during when corporate America was a command and control. Corporate America had not yet heard the word empowerment, let alone individuals. So he was basically saying, I empower you to act like an owner. Here's another thought for me was, wow, is he telling the truth? Is he, is, he's inviting the janitor to act like an owner? And so many people just, it just went over. I said, don't you, didn't you hear what he just said? He said, we could all act like owners. So I, I went into action. I started, you know, researching my company. And, and then I asked the salesman if I could go with him on a weekend. I said, I'll load your truck up. So I went to the stores with him and I loaded the Frito-Lay products and just had a great learning the business, whatever I could. And I always say, you know, all you need is, as I said it earlier, all you need is one revelation. One revelation will lead to a revolution in your life. And what is a revelation? It's simply this. It's something that was there all along. It's just been unveiled. I was looking, and this was many, many years ago, and I saw it. I saw And here's what I saw. I saw no products that were catering to Latinos or to the person who loves spices. It's all pretty much, you know, salt and maybe barbecue flavored. Uh, no one was selling, you know, spicy flavored or anything hot. So I'm like, that was it. But I remember I went home and I sat in our, on our porch and we have the old fashioned um, um, of steps, you know, concrete. So I'm sitting there and in my neighborhood, in a lot of Latino neighborhoods like mine that I grew up in, we have something that is called the uh, elote man. It's a vendor. It's a corn, called the corn man. And he sells uh, uh, corn on a stick and he puts mayonnaise, butter, cheese, however you want it, lime, chili. And uh, remember I whistled and I said, let me have two, you know one for my son here and I said yeah with everything of course so I'm eating and I'm thinking what could I do what could I create and then I looked at that and it looked just like a Cheeto and it's just like like that dog. what if I put chili on a Cheeto so I went to work you know and I actually made up my own seasoning you know that and put it on an unseasoned Cheeto my wife took some to work I took some to work and everybody fell in love with it and you know next thing you know I, I, I called the CEO Richard Montanez, the janitor, called the CEO of Frito-Lay. So I knew that I was different because of my burrito day. I also had courage because I was hungry from my cookie day. So being innovative and full of courage, plus I was naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO. Well, you know, let's find out if he's telling the truth. So I call up and his... Uh, executive assistant was just that she was an executive assistant because she saw it right away and she started saying what division do you do you run because he's a ceo only another president or vice president would call him i said no i work in california like the general manager of california no i work at the rancho cucamonga plant she's like you're the plant director i said no she says, what are you i'm the janitor so hang on ceo gets on you know 10 minutes later he says uh i'll be there in two weeks and uh, hung up the phone. And like I've always said, you know, uh, there's always somebody in the room that'll 
steal your, try to steal your, well, here comes the plan. So I really didn't know what I'd done. Montanez had crossed a social boundary that his plant manager saw as unacceptable. Here he comes and he's so upset. And I don't understand what he's upset. He's just said, do you realize what you've done? The CEO, he's coming and he's bringing everybody with him to hear you. He goes, you do the presentation. I've never done a presentation. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, but I remember, you know, um, I'm married to a brilliant woman. You know, I've, I've always said that, you know, every, when you're in trouble, you know, go to the wife, go to the mom, go to the grandma. The woman has the answer. At the time when he was told he had to give the presentation, he was 26 and barely knew how to read or write. In fact, his wife filled out the application for Frito-Lay. And then again, his wife helped him put together his marketing plan. After bumbling through the presentation, the CEO stood up and said, put them up away, you are coming with us. Six months later, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were being tested in small Latino markets in East Los Angeles. If things didn't work out, Montanez would be back mopping the floor. After some test runs in 1992, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were nationally released. Today, Flamin' Hot Cheetos are one of Frito-Lay's hottest selling commodities, a multi-billion dollar snack. Over a 35-year career, Richard Montanez, the former janitor, rose through the ranks, and he is now the vice president of multicultural sales for PepsiCo America, the holding company of Frito-Lay. But more than that, Montanez has chosen to give back to the community with scholarships, food drives, and clothing drives. He never wants to forget where he came from. He still lives in Rancho Cucamonga with his family, where they serve the community together. Well, you know, when, when, when we have an event, again, what makes me proud is that it's, it's my three sons, uh, five grandkids, my wife, two daughter-in-laws, and a handful of friends. And 5,000 people show up at my events. We typically, we feed everybody lunch. We have a big stage, we have a sound system, we have a warehouse full of toys. We, I mean, um, we give every family a box of groceries. And what I'm proud about is that, because again, I know what it is to be hungry. The box of groceries is enough groceries to feed a family of four for a week. So when you open my groceries, there's not going to be a, a can that has no label on it. I said, I've said this, if it's not good enough for my kids, then I'm not going to give it to those kids. It's got to be just as, if sometimes even better. So. When we're on stage and my grandkids, uh, that's our legacy, is I know when I look in the mirror that my success is for a reason. And that reason, it, with success comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to your fellow man. And how, you know, I, I tell people, other people who've been financially successful, how big does your house have to be before you give back? But again, I think other executives, other people who have been very, very fortunate need to understand. And, and I think a lot of them are coming around. They realize when they look at their bank account, there's a reason there's, there's that much in there. Is, you know, part of it is to give it away. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story. And we've been listening to Richard Montanez. One revelation, he said, can lead to a revolution. And what a revolution. Fear, he kept on saying, holds most people back. And it's so true. Richard Montanez's story, 
here on Our American Stories. And if you know a Richard Montanez story near you, and they're all over this country, I love that he said that most success doesn't come from family connections because it's so true in this country. It's a bunch of rubbish. And the fact of the matter is anyone can make it in this country, and Richard's life story is testament to that. Again, Richard Martinez's story, and we're looking for stories like it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. You can go on our browser bar at OurAmericanStories.com. You'll see your stories. Click it and fill out the form. Your stories are some of our favorites. And now Alex Cortez brings us a story and a voice. You'll never forget. My father was a New York City cop. My mom was a nurse. And I don't have a whole lot of great memories as a kid. I know that sounds crappy to say it that way, but... But that was the reality for this kid, Sean Pika. My father moved out when I was about eight. Mom remarried. And, you know, from that point on... There were different people, kind of father figures in my life that were never super positive. So it was, a, you know, I think a tricky way to grow up. My, my father was around, we visited with him, we saw him, but you know, he wasn't a big figure in my life. You know, you're, you're upset about that, but then as you're dealing with these, you know, my mother just always had different people in the house. And as you're dealing with those situations, you're not mad at that person. You're mad at your father that should have been there. So, you know, in some ways you lash out, or I lashed out, you know, wonder how much of that was aimed at my own father. Was Sean also mad at his mother for bringing around all of these guys? No, no, I, I you know what, I really, if anything, um, just really respect, I mean, she just, she worked two jobs. She was raising me and my brothers. She didn't get much help from anyone else. You know, single mom in those days, you know, couldn't even get a credit card. And I look back at my my neighborhood and there were not a lot of single family homes. And, and let's face it, a single mom in that era raising, you know, a few boys in a house, it, it's uh, it was tricky at best. And life would get trickier along with a classmate named Cheryl Pearson. I remember like it was yesterday, I'm sitting in homeroom, talking with Cheryl. We were both had the same last names, you know, and began with a P, so we sat together every year. You know, I would never say that we were friends or close or anything, but you know, you sit next to someone year after year, you would chat, talk, say hello. She was clearly from a different set of students than I was. I was with the, the leather jackets, hanging out in the handball court, smoking weed. You know, she was a cheerleader hanging out with the jocks. Her boyfriend was a big football player. So, you know, it was two different spectrums of the students at school. 
that would meet every morning and, you know, have that kind of common place for, you know, 21 minutes during homeroom and then we'd go in our separate directions. We had no other overlap in our lives or our world than that morning time in homeroom. So we're chatting and talking about in the news, there was a teacher that had hired one of her students to kill her husband. And we were chatting about it and talking about it and just kind of making conversation. Wow, but that's crazy. Who would ever do something like that? And um, we started talking about her father. And it literally evolved from that conversation about this teacher to us talking about killing her father together and talking about like how it would actually happen. And for Cheryl, she was just like, well, how much would something like that cost? And I remember saying a, a thousand, like it, at that point, it was kind of like, I didn't know how to back out of this conversation. And next thing you know, we're like literally putting a price on killing her father. And this was, you know, this was not a sit down conversation that we hashed out and 30 minutes later we were planning our father's death. It was like an in increments in the morning only during homeroom. And I don't know, I guess I just maybe thought it was gonna end at some point or she was gonna say, you know, this is crazy, let's not move forward. And, and I was gonna get out of this thing without saying no, but it didn't, it never stopped. If, if anything, each conversation, each morning, she would be more excited about kind of, maybe excited isn't the right word, but certainly intense about, man, this, this, could, this could happen. You know, are you sure you could really do this? Can we, and I, I was embarrassed to say, no, I, maybe I can't do it. Or, and all of a sudden I'm literally trying to figure out where to get a gun and, and I'm going to her house to shoot her father. I feel like such a coward saying that I wasn't brave enough to say I wasn't going to do it. So instead I killed somebody. And I, I mean, it's bizarre to say that out loud. And I really feel like that's what it was. From the very beginning, she was just saying that her, that she wanted her father dead. She wasn't getting into what it was or how it was. And I think as she started to see like my hesitancy, she started to talk more about why she wanted her father dead. And she definitely didn't go into detail. I mean, for me, I was, I really was assuming a lot of things, but as she talked about what was happening with her father, I knew what she was saying and I knew what was happening there. He had been sexually abusing her for years. And I knew that she wanted him dead. I did not know about what was happening with her sister until after her father's death that her motivation was more wrapped around with, that she saw the cycle of what was happening with her than beginning with her sister. I'm sure there were a, a pieces of my own life and my own anger issues and being upset with my own father and, and then the father figures in my life that an opportunity to lash out at a father, it kind of made sense when you look back on it, even though it still sounds nuts to say it out loud that you know I went and killed my friend's father. It does sound a bit nuts unless you understand the background, and then, of course, it doesn't. And Sean did lash out, and when we come back, we're going to hear more of Sean Pika's story. And my goodness, it just gets, well, it gets worse before it gets better. 
more of Sean's story here on Our American Stories. And if you want to give to Our American Stories, we're a nonprofit and we bring you these stories of redemption, of real life, away from the clamoring and anger and bitterness and chaos. Uh, help us out. Go to OurAmericanStories.com, click the donate button, give what you can. When we come back, more of Sean Pika's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with the story of Sean Pika, whose classmate asked him to kill her father for sexually abusing her and her sister. And so Sean did. Let's continue with the story. I had never seen anyone shot before. I had never shot anybody. It was just, it wasn't that kind of neighborhood. So for me, there was never, there was never any thought that I was going to do this and get away with it. And in fact, the, the hard part was I shot her father. I went home and then I thought, well, I better go to school because if I miss school, it's, it's going to be really seem weird. And I'm walking through the halls of school and everybody's talking about, oh my God, did you hear Cheryl's father was murdered? They're saying it was a hitman. And at that point, I had no idea that she had actually already asked one of my other friends to do this. So the second that it was on the news that morning that her father had been shot, that kid turned to his father, who was also a cop, and said, I think Cheryl killed her father. I know because she asked me to. Like, you know, so all of a sudden, a lot of folks knew about what had happened. In my mind, it was just a matter of time, and it ended up being a week. I, I remember panicking that that they weren't going to catch. It took them so, in my mind, a week is a long time after I had done this to be sitting there acting like everything's normal. And, you know, I was just waiting for them to come and get me. So when I was arrested, for me, it was, it was more relief than anything else. You know what, I, I think when they arrested me, I was so embarrassed about what was unfolding. And then I got to the county jail and like staff and officers and other men that were living there were like slapping me on the back and be like, oh, nice job, good work. You did the right thing. And again, as a teenager, you know, my friends are getting ready for prom and I'm in A block. My mind was grasping on to anything other than you up. This was some poor decision making and, and it was embarrassing. So I, I, you know, I grasped onto that other stuff to hold on to, and it was a lot easier for me to believe I was a champion than just a misguided youth that made some really super poor decisions. And it was quite a few years into that prison sentence before I really started to dig in and admit to myself and to others and my family that I made some mistakes here. And obviously, there's a, a, a life has been taken. You can't fix that. You can't bring that back. I think I tell this story a lot about getting to A Block in Elmira. It's, you know, five stories high. It's a football field long. It's just super 
loud and crazy and things are being thrown off the tiers and it, it was like a, it was a circus and I, you know all I could think of is am I really gonna survive like is am I gonna survive here for two decades it seems bizarre to even entertain that you know no one looked like me I was the skinniest nerdiest white guy in the world I just it just seemed really like a mountain to climb to think that this was going to be something I could get through. In the beginning, when I first got there, the very first day they give you a time computation sheet. That time literally has how much time you've already served in the county jail, the day you arrive in the prison, and the day you'll walk out already mapped out on this like carbon sheet of paper. And I just can't help but think back and say, handing that paper with the date, like literally like Friday the 13th, 2002, you're gonna walk out of prison. And it's, you know, 1987. And handing that to a teenager in a cell with no other support seems really cruel and almost like giving us a loaded gun. Like, hey, yeah, take this, have, you know, close the door behind you and we'll see you tomorrow when the cell door opens. You know, it just was, it wasn't nice. <laughs> it sounds crazy to say that, I know, but. While I was in that cell, you know, we were in the cells 23 hours a day in the beginning. When I was in that cell, just feeling super sorry for myself and like wondering how, like, is there really a, a part two to this story? <laughs> like, I'm like, uh, this is crazy. One of the officers came to my cell and he just said, you know, hey, uh, is there any chance that you would be willing to volunteer? And I just, I thought he was I like, are you serious? Like, what could I, well, what do you, what do you need? And he says, oh, well, you're one of the most educated guys around. He goes, would you consider reading to the other men? And I, I had only, only made it to the ninth grade. Like, what, what do you mean I'm one of the most educated guys around? And just out of a desperate attempt to get out of my cell, I said yes. And also, you know, just embarrassingly, like, thinking about you not volunteering you know your, your life up to that point was about what you could get what you could take what you could use so all of a sudden without any real thoughts of what volunteering would mean i agree to volunteer and i go down to this basement library in the bottom of the a block and i'm reading to the older guys you know the 24 year olds who don't know how to read and write and you think about prison being rock bottom but it's not. I mean, if the, if the only way to communicate with the outside world is to write a letter or to receive a letter and you don't know how to read and write, well, guess what? Rock bottom isn't just being in prison. It's being illiterate in prison. And if you think about the only way you could communicate with the outside world is through writing a letter or receiving a letter and you can't afford a stamp, well, guess what? Being poor in prison. You know, so the, the, there, there are so many different layers that take you down even further than just being in prison. Because rock bottom, rock bottom is much further than just walking into those prison doors. I, I would sit there and I would just, there was a pile of children's books in the middle of this library and I would just grab one and, and the guys would just earnestly listen as I, as I read to them. And uh, I remember, we had one hour in the yard a day, and you could go to the weight pit, which at 118 pounds didn't seem very smart, 
You can go play basketball, which as the only white kid in the yard didn't seem like the smartest idea in the world. And you could just hole up, you know, you throw your back against the wall and you just try to blend in, which of course is ridiculous to say out loud. And every now and then somebody would walk, they would cut the yard. And what that means is everyone else is just walking in this giant circle. And if somebody breaks that circle and walks across the yard, you know, something's about to go down. And sure enough, one of the biggest guys in the whole yard is walking across the yard. Everyone just stopped, like, where's he going? And I'm just saying to myself, oh, he's, looks like he's walking my way. Maybe he's not, like, you know, I, I, maybe he's not walking my way. No, he's definitely walking my way. And he comes up to me and he says, are you Sean? And I literally thought, like, do I say no? And then he finds out I not only lied, you know, I lied to him, uh, you know, so I, I said, yeah. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a letter and it's from his son. And he says, you know, would you consider reading? Because in prison, everything is for sale. So, you know, he's assuming I'm going to charge him, I think, you know, to read this letter to him. He says, you know, would you consider reading this letter? And I said, no, of course. And sat there on the side of the yard with just me and him reading this letter from his son who just wanted to communicate with his dad and to him well he was just so grateful to get that and he was going to just walk away and I said well hey, hey hang on a second do you want to craft something back and you know he he did he did, but of course, in that place, it's the most negative environment anywhere. People don't help people. People aren't reaching out to work with other people. So the idea that I would help him write this letter back to his son, very personal, was almost too much for him to grasp. I, you know, I, I did that for months while I was, and, and I didn't charge for it. You know, there's a crazy white guy in the yard that will read and write letters to your family for free. Just go see him. You know, like it just didn't happen. And you're listening to the voice of Sean Pika, who at a very young age finds himself in A Block in Elmira. And this is not a place for someone in high school to be. And yet what he does with his time there, well, you just heard, people don't help people in prison. And it's true. It is a deeply negative environment if you've ever spent time in prisons I have. And my goodness, to read this letter for this stranger, this letter that a son had written, and to do it for no charge, gratis, in a place where everything's for sale, just a touch of beauty and grace. When we come back, more of Sean Pika's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Sean Pika's story of being in nine New York State prisons. Let's return to Sean. So I, um, I get out of solitary confinement in, um, in Comstock. You know, I'm out in the yard. You know, again, you know, someone's cutting the yard. So everyone's walking in this big circle. And all of a sudden, this guy cuts across the yard. And I'm like, oh, he look, yeah, it looks like he's coming. Yeah, he's coming my way. You know, try and blend. No, that doesn't work. And, you know, he's, hey, you know, Sean. And I I knew who he was. But Big Al was Big Al. Like, he was huge. And he's like, hey, I don't know if you know it, but um, we have this youth program. 
you know, we had these kids come in once a month. And the hard part for us and what we do is that we're all their father's ages. He says, but you are actually younger than seniors in high school. So it would be kind of cool if you joined us. And I remember saying back to him, I swear this is like yesterday, I had this conversation. Yeah, Al, I said, you know, I, I can't even help myself. How, how the f*** would I help these kids? Like, I, I'm not interested in that. And he said, oh, Sean, I'm, no, no, I'm sorry, Sean. I'm so sorry for the, the miscommunication. We're not asking. It starts Monday. Be there about six. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you then. So I was like, oh, oh, I got you. Yeah, I'll see you Monday. And um, I show up. And when we're out in front of the room waiting to go in, the officer and Big Al are talking like colleagues. And for me, I mean, I had been around a couple of years by now. I hadn't really witnessed that kind of dialogue before, you know? And even like guys, like I've had some really good prison jobs, but I was like a slave. Like I literally worked and reported to the officer and like did what he wanted, how he wanted, when he wanted. It never felt like a, a, a relationship. And all of a sudden I see Al and the officer talking about the game plan and what to do and what the layout was and Al taking over, you know, who was gonna do what assignments. And, you know, one guy was gonna talk about education in prison, one was gonna talk about peer pressure, one guy was gonna talk about drugs and alcohol. Sean, why don't you talk about family life? And I was all right. And I just started talking about, you know, when I made these decisions I made, I remember just thinking, well, whatever happens, I gotta deal with it. You know, it's no one else's burden but my own. But the fact is, when I went to prison, you know, I let myself down, my family down, my community down, my friends down, the high school down. Like, I let everybody down and it's horrible. And the fact is, when you go to prison, your family goes with you. I remember just getting super emotional. And as I'm crying in front of these, you know, 20 kids I've never met before, thinking, wow, I, I, it's been so long since I cried. I had the entire room, the staff, the officers, the other guys, everyone was crying. We wrap up, we, we leave, and Big Al gives me this big hug. He goes, man, that was brilliant. You gotta cry every month. <laughs> and, um, and that's what we started doing. And most folks didn't realize your sentence as an adult and could go to a maximum security prison at 16. You know, I looked like them. And it, it was probably pretty effective for them to see a young white kid in a prison uniform surrounded by guys that didn't look like him. And that was the first time that Sean had cried in years. Yeah, I mean, you just, you didn't cry in prison. You didn't show emotion. And, you know, by that point, I didn't remember the last time I had cried. And, uh, you know, it was just, and also that it wasn't like this moment of everybody like chastising, like everybody was crying. Everybody was open, like it was just like, man, that was great, we needed that. And I, I also feel like because I was so much younger than everybody else, that I got away with stuff that Big Al wouldn't have gotten, gotten away with. If it was Big Al that got emotional, guys would be talking about it the next night in the yard. Or, you know, maybe they wouldn't be chastising him, but they'd, they'd definitely be a thing. But because I was so young and so skinny and so nerd, like, it was all right. And I think it was years of me kind of getting away from 
not having, like, I didn't, I didn't really have anything to show off. It wasn't like, you know, in prison, there's a lot of showing off going on. It's a pecking order. Who's the toughest guy? Who could lift the most weight? Who can fight the hard? You know, all of a sudden, there's Sean, and I, I don't have any of those things. So if I cry, like, no one's pointing and laughing at me or whatever. So I could be in a group with guys at the school and whatever and get emotional, and it, wouldn't, it wasn't weird. Does that make sense? One of the guys said, have you thought about finishing high school? And I was like, wait, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, you know, I noticed in your, in your file, I work up front, I noticed that you, did, you know, that you didn't finish high school. You know, you should really, you know, they have that here, you could finish high school, you could. So I just thought, why bother? You know, at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, 18 years old and, you know, sentenced to 24 years in prison. I don't even have an opportunity to get out for the next 10 years. You know, if, if I do get out early, it seemed really silly to be worrying about a high school diploma. But these older guys really pushed me. And I remember hearing for the first time ever, because I've always struggled in school. When I just said to the guys, honestly, like, hey, I, I would go, but I'm not school material. Like, I'm just keep it real. And they said, well, no, we'll, we're gonna work with you. When I graduated and got the high school diploma, there should have been 15 people up on the stage with me. All of his fellow prisoners who helped him. Oh, I mean, just tutoring me, walking me through it, helping me with the math. Like, I mean, I just, I never had anyone willing to do that before. Certainly never got that in school. If you did something wrong or couldn't do the work, or you know, there, there was never any help, never any additional help, never any anything like that. And my mom was, you know, had two jobs. She wasn't coming home after work and helping me do my math. So... All of a sudden, I'm in prison and these older guys are walking me through my multiplication tables and getting me ready for this test and helping me with my grammar. And I mean, pretty incredible when you think about these guys that had no stake in me at all, that I you know, couldn't pay, I had nothing, were just selflessly helping me prepare for a high school diploma. And I feel like so many of those guys we're really like rolling the dice and betting on my future without me understanding what that even meant. Because as soon as that finished, they were now coaxing me to get into the pre-college component. And, then, and again, went through pre-college, then signed up for college. And I really, for the first time ever, thought, well, maybe, maybe I could do more. And to think about that it, 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 as a teenager, for the first time you really think, well, maybe I could do more is in a prison graduation, kind of a feeling too, you know? Is that by that point, you've already, you've already made your bed. You know, to start thinking maybe there could have been a different future for me at that point, stinks. You know, back in the 80s, there was a college program in every single prison. So as I got moved and started over, I would sign up for a new college. I went through JCA, Ulster County Community College, New York Theological Seminary, Nyack College, Skidmore University. I mean, I just, I had hundreds of college credits before I left prison. And you're listening to Sean Pika and his remarkable life story. When you go to prison, your family goes with you. And that is so true. I'd let down my family, my town, my school. 
And then we heard about the episode, well, that crying episode. You don't cry in prison. You don't show emotion. Because I was so much younger than everyone else, I got away with it. Because I was so young and skinny, I guess it was all right. And now Sean was learning that he could have a second life, a new life. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about this second life and this renaissance, this new Sean Pika. More of his life story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the final portion of Sean Pika's powerful redemption story. In 1994, the federal crime bill eliminated Pell Grant funding for prisoners' educations. And hundreds of these programs that folks like Sean were benefiting from, well, they went away overnight. So in 1998, while he was still in prison, Sean helped found Hudson Link, a nonprofit that raises money to pay for prisoners' education. Let's return to Sean. From the first day I came home, I was running errands and volunteering with Hudson Lane just in an effort to give back. So maybe it was 04 when they asked me if I would consider joining the board of directors. And for me, it was just such an honor to have decision-making capability in an organization that gave me a second chance at life that I jumped at the opportunity and I sat on the board participated and what I realized right away was that these folks who have dedicated their lives and their resources and their money to running this prison college program didn't know anything about prison. So they would ask just general questions at these board meetings, you know, about how do you get textbooks delivered to 60 students in five cell blocks and I would have casual answers and every time I would say something, everybody else on the board of directors would furiously write down everything I said. And I said, well, geez, nobody else knows about ABLA. <laughs> you know, and it gave me this bandwidth to really be helpful in these conversations that was, you know, an organization that gave me a second chance at life. So I did that for about two years. And, you know, as we talked about growing the program and the number of students and maybe shifting curriculum, and all of a sudden in 2007, the board says, okay, we have 66 students. We have one college partner, we have one facility. How do we take it to the next level? And we think that that next level has to be hiring the first director to start managing this program. Uh, up until that point, everyone's a volunteer. The board of directors, the staff, everyone's just volunteering. So I'm on the committee to review the resumes for applicants. And maybe like a month and a half into this process, the board chair pulls me on the side and says, you are literally more qualified as a volunteer than everyone else that's applying for this job. Would you consider being the first director? You know, my very first reaction was I had never fundraised it. I'd, I'd never managed staff. I, I didn't know anything about the college work. And he says, well, you're already doing it. You're doing 90% of this job as a volunteer. Like, let's just think what you could do if you were doing it full time. And um, they had the commissioner of corrections, the superintendent of Sing Sing, the board chair sat with me and talked about what it would mean. Because for me, I also thought, 
would the officers be offended that I'm coming back in in a suit and tie to run this college? I just, I don't know why, I just really thought that they would not want that. And the commissioner said, I've already been asking around, Sean, this so excited that you would consider being the one to come back inside. And, you know, 12 years later, we went from 66 students to over 600. We went from one facility to five, from one college partner to nine. We have 600 degrees conferred in 21 years. We have 70% of our staff are formerly incarcerated, have been through this program and now run it. It's the only degree granting college program in a prison in the country that's run and staffed by formerly incarcerated people. And, you know, in 21 years, we have a less than 2% recidivism rate. The percentage of former prisoners who end up back in prison and 2% is practically unheard of. Here's the quote normal recidivism rate. Nationally, it's about 68%. I think one of the values that we're bringing, aside from the educational component, is this idea that we're serving the communities that the men and women will return to. I think a lot of folks don't realize that 95% of the New York State Department of Corrections inmate population are returning. You know, how do you want them to be delivered back to those communities? We can deliver a better product back. And also, some of those students are never going back. So if we have someone that has a double life sentence, they need to get this education as well because they're serving a community as well. These guys are literally saving lives and secondarily, they're also saving taxpayers a whole lot of money. The numbers that I'm hearing is that it costs about 55,000 per inmate per year to keep them incarcerated. And that's medical, that's feeding them, that's keeping the prisons open. So if we know that for an investment of 5,000 per year, that 98% of those students don't return to the prison system, we're saving New York taxpayers millions of dollars a year. Because if we've served 1,200 students in 21 years and 50% or 60% of them should have gone back to the prison system at 55,000 a year, that's millions of dollars that New York is not paying. And Hudson Link's work has been powered by donors like Carrie Morgridge, who originally told us about them and is freely giving away her resources to transformational ideas like this and a pretty cool new one. So this idea of taking dilapidated homes in impoverished communities and using our students to rebuild them while they rebuild our lives has been such a powerful move for the organization to create housing for the returning students as well. And also for the students that are inside to know that somebody that got out of prison and didn't just turn their back, didn't just walk away, didn't just forget about that part of their life, but is actually now working and volunteering on these homes so that they have a place to live when they come out is just connecting these two worlds inside of the prison and outside of the prison in a way that's never been done before. And Stand Together, a network of givers who are focused on helping successful nonprofits scale and have even greater impact are backing something at Sing Sing Prison. That's another first. And all of a sudden, we're partnering with Stand Together to take an abandoned building on prison grounds. You know, there were three buildings that were shoe factories in the 30s that were converted to housing units, and then in 02, when I went home, they closed those three buildings down and moved the population up the hill to the cell block, to, to the traditional cell blocks, because the population in the New York State prison was dropping for the first time ever. You know, we're all struggling 
to find space to run these college programs and you know stand together and said well why don't we just renovate one of those old buildings so we started last year discussions with the governor's office and the department of corrections to take over one of these buildings and we're doing it the first building 47,000 square feet has already been gutted and we're about to enter into the design phase and then we're going to put it back together and you know it's it's so much bigger than just building a college because aside from it being the first freestanding college in a prison in the country it's also the floor and building and place i lived in while i lived there so for me to go back in there and work in that building that i once lived in to now deliver college not to 150 people but to 800 people it's going to transform the entire new york state department of corrections and college as we know it and to close we talked about what happened to sean's relationship with cheryl pearson after cheryl and i were arrested we were in the county jail but we were in two different sections of the county jail so we didn't get to see each other so we, we were allowed to write so we were writing each other keeping in contact just trying to encourage each other and when the trial started you know we would see each other at the hearings and then i took a plea bargain which was eight to 24 and a half years and cheryl got six months five years probation so i was moved out of the prison first and i landed in the maximum security prison elmira correctional facility upstate new york when i got there almost immediately you know hearing from Cheryl and my other friends that were still in high school about you know upcoming prom and you know summer vacation and what what was happening in high school and I not only stopped writing to Cheryl I stopped writing to a lot of my like almost everybody I, I literally just said I I need to put that part of my life in a box right now and concentrate on getting through each day when I did that I stopped writing and never started again and I kind of feel like that was my best possible gift to her to have any kind of normalcy when she got out of prison and move on with her life. And I don't know how else to put it than, than that was just my way of just saying, you move forward, I'm stuck here, me and you writing really won't be helpful to you or me. And then after I was released, there, there you know, I would hear from her, you know, hey, I hope you're well or whatever, but to me, it didn't make any sense at all to go backwards and start a relation, start a new relationship. It just, I don't sit still well. Uh, I've dedicated my life to this program and to the population that we serve. So I am, you know, working with the governor's team for reentry. I'm working with the New York State Department of Corrections on policy and day-to-day -day services. I'm managing five different college programs in five different prisons. I'm managing the reentry in six different prisons. I'm now managing a brand new construction initiative and I'm also renovating the home that I'm living in while taking care of my in-laws. So um, I, don't, I don't really have a lot of hangout time. I don't do a lot of things socially. If it's not work related, I really don't even do it. So it doesn't really cross my mind that I should look back and think about a casual dinner to talk about what happened, how things are what the future might look like. I, I know what my future looks like, and that's what I'm concentrating on. And you've been listening to Sean Pika, and to help the organization that he's shepherding, go to HudsonLink.org. That's HudsonLink.org. So many Americans do these kind of things with their lives, folks, 
And again, we like to give you the good news that's out there. The bad news is widely, widely distributed. 66 students to 600, five colleges and five prisons. And my goodness, a recidivism rate of 2%. It's astounding. But that's what happens when you see every life is a life worth saving and a life worth redeeming. Sean Pika's story, a beauty, here on Our American Story. Our American Story. 